Hello, and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is the Great Big History Podcast. In today's episode, we do uh, the early Byzantine Empire, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire, which stretches from, which was the eastern half of the Roman Empire, stretches in southeastern Europe, the Balkans, as they're known today, Asia Minor, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, and Egypt, and parts of Libya. Uh, this was the eastern part of the Roman Empire, the Greek-speaking part of the Roman Empire. And so we look at the invasions. The, the Huns come out of uh, Eastern Asia, come across the Great Steppe, hit Europe, and push the Goths and the Germans flooding into the Roman Empire. Now, if you have the video, you could take a look at the map, and you see this map. There's all of these squiggly lines in Western Europe, going through France, going through Spain, going through Italy, even going into Southeastern Europe, into the Balkans. But there are no squiggly lines. There are no invasions. East of that, Asia Minor, Syria, the Levant, Egypt, that Eastern Mediterranean hook. There just aren't any. And the reason why was because the Romans had built Constantinople. And that served as a plug, keeping all of these barbarians from invading the East, which was the wealthier part. It was the more urbanized part. It was the better part to live in. And so the Western Roman Empire collapses, but the Eastern Roman Empire will survive. And so why? Because of Constantinople. It was a big, defensive, huge trade capital. By 500 AD, it's the largest city in the world. The second thing is, the East was more Christian than the West was. They had, uh, Christianity grew up in the East. It comes out of Palestine, it comes out of Israel. Um, St. Paul is in Asia Minor. He is he is in Greece. Um, none of the apostles go farther west than Rome. In fact, there are no major Roman uh, patriarchs, leaders of the church, west of Rome. And so while there's five in the east, so Christianity gave a unity of belief That we are Romans, we are Roman Christians, and we are the chosen people. And that will survive the collapse of the West. It's not that the Western Christians didn't believe this. It's that this unity of belief is going to hold the East together longer. Finally, three, the, Roman, the East Roman Empire survives because they're Roman. 
So they're Roman, they're Christians, and they're urban. They're Roman. They're inheritors of Greek and Roman knowledge, which gives them an advantage against barbarians. We see this especially in the invention of Greek fire, which is like a which is a petroleum-based weapon that is a bit magical. It 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 is like napalm. It burns on water. Being petroleum-based, it it floats on water and it burns everything. So they invent that. So they're in the inheritors of Greek and Roman knowledge, of Greek and Roman science, of Greek and urban legends and stories and myths. And that gives them this advantage against barbarians. 476 is seen as humiliation that the Romans have to redeem. See, we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire in 476, but that's really only half the Roman Empire. It's only the Western half. And plenty of people were waiting for the eastern half, the, the, the emperor in the east, to come and save them. It's not like in 477, there's no more Romans. We see this in the language. Spanish, French, Italian are all Latin-based. So they hold on to their culture. They're waiting And the people in the East see this as a humiliation. How could our empire, the greatest empire in the world, be destroyed by a bunch of forced barbarians? We have to undo this. So in the 500s, we get a recovery. The empire strikes back. In the form of Justinian. Justinian is from 527 to 565. You could spell his name Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N-I-A-N. Justinian is from 527 to 565. So for the first time in a long time, we finally have gotten an emperor who's in charge for a while. Remember that the third century collapse where we have Emperor after emperor after emperor. We actually had 25 emperors in 26 years. We had all of this instability. Finally, we get a real emperor for a real amount of time. And it's important because Justinian, I like Justinian. Historians like Justinian. Why? Because he's really the last Roman emperor. He's the last one that looks and acts like a Roman emperor. All the emperors after him will speak Greek. And especially the emperors after the 630s, with the conquest of um, North Africa and the Near East by, by the Muslims, by Arabs, Justinian, and to uh, a lesser extent, Heraclius, who comes a couple of guys later, are the last to rule over something that looks like the Roman Empire, that acts like the Roman Empire, that thinks like the Roman Empire. After them, after Heraclius, really, Heraclius is, is kind of the coda, defeats Persia in a war that went on for hundreds of years, but lost to the Arabs. And... 
Heraclius is the last guy to rule, rule over something that looks like the Roman Empire. So Justinian has the goal of remaking the Roman Empire. And so Justinian will wage war, as Roman emperors do. He will invade Italy, Sicily, North Africa, Spain, conquer them all. Now he conquers the eastern part of Spain, the part connected to the Mediterranean, connected to the water. But for the first time in 200 years, 300 years, we have a Roman Empire stretching from the Atlantic to the Euphrates. So Italy, including Rome, Sicily, North Africa, including Carthage, are now Roman again. The big three cities are again Roman. And that's huge. Now, Justinian can't conquer, Rome was not built in a day. Justinian can't conquer the entire Roman Empire in, in even his lifetime. But it's a good start. So, if you look on the map, it's, it's the stabilization of Greece and the Balkans, the conquest of Sicily and Italy, the conquest of North Africa and centered on Carthage, and then southern, southeastern Spain. We again get a Roman Empire looking like a Roman Empire. The second thing he does is the exact thing Roman emperors do, public works. Now, you can't build Colosseum anymore. You can't murder Christians anymore. Everybody's a Christian. And so what do you build? You build churches, giant churches. The Hagia Sophia, the largest church in the world for the next thousand years. Hagia, H-A-G-I-A, Sophia, S-O-P-H-I-A. In fact, the space underneath the dome of the Hagia Sophia is supposed to be like the largest enclosed space, the largest roof space in the world for the, like the next thousand years. It's going to take the building of uh, St. Peter's Basilica to, to rival this. So we build giant churches, marvelous churches, churches that not only show off Christianity, show off Jesus, but show off the emperor. We build hippodromes, H-I-P-P-O-D-R-O-M-E-S, horse stadiums, horse racing. This is why horse racing is called the sport of kings. It is more popular. Horse racing was always more popular. The chariot racing was always more popular than the coliseums. The hippodrome in um, Rome, which was called the Circus Maximus, could hold 100,000 people. Probably more. Whereas the Colosseum held 50,000 or so. Now you could see, right? Right there is the conversion. Because in Rome, it's Latin. The Circus Maximus. Whereas now, in the Byzantine world, we're using Greek. The Hippodrome. Latin is that. Latin was the language of government in the East, but Greek was always a language of education because it goes back to Alexander, goes back to Athens. 
So you build the Hippodrome, large horse stadiums, and you build ports so that these, these cities can, can, can connect. And the Byzantine world becomes, Constantinople becomes the largest trade city in the world for at least 500 years or so. So you get the Hagia Sophia, the largest church in the world. And as long as nothing bad happens, if we get a couple of good stable emperors, nothing bad happens. We get a new Roman Empire. We all speak, we'll probably speak Greek instead of Latin, but that's all right. Uh, it's the language of Socrates and Aeschylus. And the world moves on. And, and Europe gets reestablished. Europe gets reunited. Our capital is now Constantinople rather than Rome, but it's the crossroads of the world. It's where the Silk Road ends. It's the entrepot to the rest of Europe, including the Black Sea and the Mediterranean world. It's great. We will live a perfectly fine life. So is that what happens? No. In the 600s, disaster happens, and that is the Arab invasion of the East, and that is the loss of the Middle East, the loss of North Africa, even the loss of Spain. Meanwhile, at around the same time, Slavic peoples, forced barbarians out in the forests of what is now Poland and Russia, start moving in, moving south, replacing what had been the lands, of, repopulating the lands that had been the Goths, bumping into Germanic-speaking lands, creating a border in Europe that still exists, the, the, the border between a Germanic and a Slavic world. So the Byzantine Empire finds itself being pushed from the north by the Slavs, S-L-A-V-S, and in the south and the east by the Arabs. Now, nobody expected this. The Slavs are completely new people. They were way out there in the forests, on the Baltic, no one knew they were even there, because how would you? Um, and the Arabs were desert nomads. The Arabs don't matter. The desert frontier that separated uh, Palestine and Syria from Arabia wasn't even guarded. The The Emperor Philip said, let's put lions out there, that will keep they will patrol. They'll patrol the border and they'll eat anyone who tries to get over it because there's so few people. Who cares? Now, we're going to talk about what happens and why that changes, but the Arabs come rushing out and quickly take over what is now the Islamic Middle East, Egypt, places that should have been able to resist collapse. Persia collapses, and this is because the Byzantines and the Persians and before the Byzantines, Rome had fought for several hundred years and basically exhausted themselves. So that when the Arabs came rushing out, they found people who were willing to trade peace. For control. They found people in Persia and in the Middle East in the Byzantine Middle East, willing to make a deal. The Arabs will eventually conquer all of North Africa, jump across to Spain, 
They'll even invade Sicily, Sardinia and Corsica, all basically everything Justinian reconquered except for Italy. But meanwhile, at the same time, there's an increased push by Germanic peoples, the Lombards. The Slavs are coming in and pushing on the Danube. The Byzantine world is under stress and wasn't really in a position to respond. And one of the reasons it's not in a position to respond, not only was it exhausted by the wars with Persia, was there was a giant plague that came through at the end of Justinian's reign that probably killed about 25% of the world as it came from Asia into Europe. The death toll is probably about 25%. It is a great plague. The problem with that is it's essentially happening in the Dark Ages in Western Europe. So no one wrote it down. And a lot of what was written down is lost. And so the memory of this plague in of the 500s into the 600s it doesn't is just not historical. It's as much legendary as anything else. The history that we have is fragmentary. Though we know the plague happened, we know the plague killed a lot of people, but it, the black plague of the Middle Ages is going to be far more remembered but this one is equally as devastating if not more because it kind of gave the end it crushed the urban civilizations in persia in the byzantine empire and gave gave allowed nomadic peoples germans slavs arabs or semi-nomadic peoples to fill in those gaps and the world has changed the world is different today because of that plague in ways that really are massive. The Arab invasion is a trauma to the Islamic world, to the Byzantine world. Why? We're God's chosen people. We're Roman and we're Christian. We got Jesus. We not only have Jesus, we got Christ Panakrator, the great, the Christ the all-powerful. He is on our side. And here come the Arabs, desert nomads, nobody, insignificant, to their Muslims. Why does that matter? They claim that their knowledge of God is better than our knowledge of God. Their version of our God, Allah, they claim is more up to date, is better, is truer than our understanding of Jehovah. So we have to get into this just briefly. We talked about this earlier, but it, it, it's important to understand because we're getting into this. Most monotheistic people follow what's called the Abrahamic tradition, meaning their God, their one super God, is the God of Abraham. That means Jews, Christians, and Muslims all believe in the same God. If you go to the big party in the sky at the end of days and you get a mimosa and a bagel and you walk around chatting with baseball heroes 
and 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 eccentric artists and you see a man, a woman, an animal, a potted plant wearing a name tag. Hi, my name is Yahweh, Jehovah, Allah. That being is the big guy. That being is God. That being is transcendental, can be whatever that being wants. Wants to be a plant, he could be a plant. Doesn't have to be anything. It's beyond understanding. My point is, is that it's the same God. Allah, Jehovah, Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of the God of the Jews. Jehovah, the name of the God for the Christians. And Allah, the name of the God for the Muslims. It's all the same God. It's all the same being. It's just different understandings of who that God is. And if you read your Torah, and you read your New Testament, and you read your Quran, you get that idea. These are these are the same God. They're just understood to be acting different. The way I put it is the way is is how one sees a parent. I think this is a good analogy. Um, Thomas Friedman. The writer for the New York Times has uses it as software that Judaism is Windows 95. The first Windows looks nice. Everyone likes it. Christianity is God 2.0, is Windows XP. It's still Windows, but it's so much different, and you should upgrade. It's better. Everyone should upgrade. And lots of people do. There are some people who still use Windows 95, but lots of people take XP. And all new people who come into Windows get XP. Islam then is God 3.0. The newest, the fanciest, it's Windows 10. Could you still get by using Windows XP? Sure. Are there still people using Windows 95? Probably. Somewhere. Yes. But the argument is, hey, we're the newest, we're the best, you should use us. The other way I try to describe it is how one sees a parent. Me and my brothers have the same mother and father. Have the same father. I'm the oldest, my youngest brother's the youngest, my middle brother's the middle. Do we all view my father as exactly the same? And the answer to that is no. There's similarities. But there's also differences in our relationships to that same person. And so, and you may have done the same thing. You sit around and go, oh, you know, dad is like, and one of your brothers or sisters will go, dad's not like that. Dad, dad loves to go fishing. And you're like, not when I was a kid. Dad would never get into a boat when I was a kid. And so you have a different, because you are different people, you have a different relationship and thus a different understanding to the same person. To the point that he's not the same thing. 
my father is not my youngest brother's father, even though they're the same person. Our relationships are different. Our understandings are different. Do you see how this works? If you think about it with your brothers and sisters and how you view your parents, you kind of will see how Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all view the same God just differently. This is why I never understand Christians who love the Old Testament. I just don't understand it. Because Christians get the New Testament, a God of peace, a God of love, a God of the Beatitudes. Why would you want the Old Testament God of punishment, of violence, of destruction, of Job? Christ died for your sins in the New Testament. God wiped out people for their sins in Sodom, in Gomorrah, in the story of Noah. So, it's a different version. And I don't understand why people who go, hey, I got this nice, peaceful God, would suddenly turn around and go, hey, but that God, it's a different God. It's someone else's God. And so... And so that's how this works. So when the Byzantines look at the Muslims, they look at them as posers. Hey, you're pretending to like our God and you're getting it all wrong. Of course, the Muslims think that about the Christians. They're like, dude, you're old school. You're, you got the wrong understanding of God. And, you know, you had it for a while. Get off the stage. So how do you know who's right? Well, how do you know who's right? War. War has always been the way of proving who's right, which side God is on, and the Arabs clearly win. They even laid siege to Constantinople in 717. I mean, they came within an ace, within a three outs in the bottom of the ninth of destroying the Byzantine Empire. Had that happened, had they con- conquered Constantinople in 717, we were all... We're all Muslims. Europe is not Christian anymore. There is nothing in um, Europe that would have stopped a hundred, an army of 100,000 Arabs and Persians marching across Europe, bringing Islam and the Quran. But the use of Greek fire... The use of Constantinople's huge walls saved Constantinople. They're able to beat back the Arabs. It's a big defeat. But it's like having a heart attack on the table. It, it, it is a near-death experience, and that is a trauma. The Arab conquest is a trauma. Three-quarters of your empire is gone, and it's a trauma. And so the Byzantines looked around and said, what, what, what do we do? What are we doing so wrong that God hates us? Not only would God hate us, he created a new version of us to punish us. He created a whole group of pagans and heretics who think they have the right God. Why would that happen? And they looked around and the answer was obvious. Icons. 
are image of Christ Pentecrator. Icons are images of religiously significant people. The Sistine Chapel, icons. A Slavic Orthodox Church, full of icons. Icons were the images of religiously important people or events. The problem with that is the second commandment specifically is against that. The second commandment says, don't have icon, don't have images, no graven images, no false gods, no graven images. So Judaism does not have a artistic representation of God or of the other religiously important people. It doesn't exist. Their artistic um, expression goes elsewhere. Romans, on the other hand, valued the representation of the body. The Greeks did too. The Platonic ideal. And so they were perfectly happy making images of their gods, making images of people in the likeness of their gods. Perfectly happy. And so Christians come along and go, ah, uh, you can't do that. And the Romans go, uh, I think I'm going to keep doing this. And like, um, you should really be a Christian. He's like, yeah, but I'm making a statue. If I'm a Christian, I can't do that. So I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And so, you know, St. Paul or some other missionary goes, okay, okay. I got an idea. What if, like, we already got rid of the circumcision. Yeah, I like that. Okay, I know. Uh, we also got rid of the not eating bacon. Oh, I love that part. I love putting bacon on, on stuff. Yeah, I, I know. What if we also get rid of that whole graven images? What if you just don't draw Jupiter? You just call him Jesus. And the guy goes, can I keep the six-pack abs? I've already did them. And St. Paul probably says, yeah, of course. Yeah, why not? Jesus is awesome. Jesus couldn't have six-pack abs. And, you know, just don't worship the statue. Worship Jesus. And the guy goes, no problem. Now, people will mess this up all the time. They will give these statues, these images, symbols, religious significance. I had grandparents who never threw out an image of Jesus. They couldn't throw it out. It's just an image. It's just a piece of paper. But to them, it had, it was Jesus. So it had that religious, spiritual power to it. That you could rub your crucifix on your neck and say a prayer. And the idea of the images was to put you in the spirit of talking to the big guy of asking forgiveness, of talking to Jesus or God or the saints. But lots of people, but the difference between to and at in, in Western languages is not a big difference. Some languages use the same word for to and at. And it's only in the usage that you, you, you know which one it is. And so peasants are perfectly capable 
of mixing up the two, praying to a statue versus praying at a statue. And so the Byzantines look at this disaster and say, God is mad at us. God is mad at our icons. It's right there in the second commandment. So we get iconoclasm. I-C-O-N-O-C-L-A-S-M. The destruction of icons. The destruction of religious symbols. We are going to save ourselves from God's wrath by getting rid of images. Now... So what we get is conservatism. That Christianity triumphs over being Roman. Really for the first time. Up to this point, Christianity kept changing in order to accommodate itself to Romanism. Hell, even the Trinity is is Greek. The Trinity is nice. Judaism doesn't have it. Like, Jesus doesn't think about the Trinity. Neither do any of the apostles. It's a Greek idea of how to rectify that God the Father and God the Son are both God, since you can only have one God. See, pagans and, and polytheists go, uh, obviously there's two different gods. Obviously there's three different gods. This is exactly what um, Hinduism does. It starts with one creator God and then from that comes more aspects of that creator God and what Hinduism says is, well, obviously they're gods. Like, this isn't hard. You don't have to invent a weird-ass Greek philosophical concept and a lot of math to try to make it work. we got three gods. And so... Religion is now going to win. And belief is going to win. And science dies out. Science in Europe dies out. The Arab world will become the leaders of science. And then it will transfer over to China. In the later Middle Ages. But science is on its way out. And it's going to be replaced by conservative religious belief. Revelation. The idea is God will let you know what you need to know. In some way, it's a take on Plato. And this is really where, this is the end of the Roman world. This is really where you get a real Middle Ages that looks and thinks not like the classical world anymore, but like a new a new Middle Age, medieval world. What's going to become the Middle Ages? Now, things have been moving because of any good classicist of the end of the Roman era is going to say, well, it's not this clear break. And they're completely right. Things have been moving in this direction for a while, economically especially. Land ownership. But this is the point really of no return. The destruction of icons and the collapse in many ways of the Byzantine Roman project is, is kind of the, the, the point of no return from which we will enter the Middle Ages. From here on in, we're into the Dark Ages in Western Europe, then into the Middle Ages, the medieval world. Um, 
but the light is flickering is not so bright here in Constantinople either. This also results, iconoclasm also results up in a break with the Pope, who's not the Pope yet. He's the Bishop of Rome, but it's, they write a letter and they write a letter to the Bishop of Rome and say, yo, Bishop of Rome, got to get rid of your icons. Now the Bishop of Rome has a problem. He's got Goths, he's got Germans, he's got barbarians living in his territory. And now that we're 300 years later, even people who used to be Roman aren't literate anymore. And so he's dealing with a massive problem. You can't give the Bible to anybody. The only educated people in Western Europe at this point are essentially the priests. And only because they needed to read the Bible. And so he gets this letter saying, you have to destroy your icons. He goes, no, I can't do that. There's no other way of converting these people. There's none. I can't hand them a Bible. They will burn it for, they will burn it for heat or use it for toilet paper. It ain't going to work. I have to show them images. The second thing is, the God in the New Testament ain't going to work anyway. These are barbarians. These are Germanic barbarians, Gothic barbarians who have conquered the Roman Empire. They don't want a prince of peace. They don't want Jesus sitting on a mountain saying, blessed are the meek. That ain't a God who's going to appeal to guys who just conquered the greatest empire in the whole wide world. They want badass, kick-your-ass, Old Testament, God-type Jesus. Vengeful, Doc Martin, flaming uh, sword in one hand, shepherd, crook in the other, because he's shepherd of the people, kicking people into hell. Very much the Christ on the last judgment day in the um, Sistine Chapel. Badass, angry Jesus. That will appeal to the barbarians. That's a God they can get behind. Not a guy who sits Buddha-like, handing out bread and fishes, turning water into wine. Though, to be fair, the barbarians would like that, that idea. And so the bishop wrote, says, no, I can't do that. And so he gets back a letter saying, well, if you don't do that, we're going to kick you out of the church. And the bishop of Rome sends back, no, I'm going to kick you out of the church because these are images of Jesus. You know what you don't do? You don't destroy images of Jesus. Like, who are you to do that? That's crazy. So, as in good, any good breakup, who broke up with who? They both broke up with each other. The Bishop of Rome says, I break up with you. The Patriarch of Constantinople and the Emperor say, I break up with you. You can't quit. I fire you. You can't fire me. I quit. You have seen this happen. You've maybe had this kind of breakup. And so what we end up with is two churches. The Orthodox Church in the East and the Catholic Church in the West. We end up with a Pope. Because the Bishop of Rome is the only major bishop in the West. And he says, well, I am no longer going to be the Bishop of Rome. I'm going to be Papa, the Father, Pope. So we're going to get two churches, one of which will be based on Latin. The Orthodox one will be based on Greek. 
They'll end up with two calendars. They'll end up with two different services. They'll end up with one has icons and one doesn't. Now, asterisk there, they bring them back in the 900s. So this fight is really about nothing. It's a fight they had in the past. They broke up and then you realize later on it didn't really matter. But what does this mean for unity in Europe? A new Roman Empire? It's gone. It will never happen. Eastern Europe, Slavic Europe, Byzantine Europe becomes Orthodox, becomes Eastern Europe. Western Europe, Germanic Europe, Latin Europe will become Catholic Europe. We'll use a Latin script. Eastern Europe will use the Cyrillic script, a Greek-based script. They are two different peoples who used to be united and are will no longer ever be united again. Europe will be split into two and has never been united again. That brings us to the Battle of Manticore. The Byzantines actually make a comeback for a while. They beat up on the Slavs. They convert the Slavs to, to Orthodox Christianity. Um, they stabilize control of Asia Minor. Uh, there's some thoughts about invading into the Middle East, recapturing Damascus, maybe even Jerusalem. That all ends with the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. The Turks, the Turkish um, people, Speaking people are nomadic horse people. Remember, we keep talking about how nomads show up and wreck civilization. Here we go. So um, the major group here is what's called the Seljuks. The spelling on our map is S-E-L-J-U-Q-S. The Seljuk Turks. I want to say many times that Q is actually a K, but... Um, this is the map I'm using because it shows the map I have on the video shows um, the movement of the Cedric Turks from Central Asia on the Caspian Sea into uh, first Persia, Iran, and then into um, Asia Minor. They're brought in as mercenaries by uh, the Caliph. They they conquer, they beat, you know, they, they work for the caliph and then they tell the caliph what to do because they're just like um, the robots in Terminator or the machines in the Matrix. They realize that the people they're working for are idiots and that they can run the show better themselves. Um, and so they kind of take over. But what they're really looking for is a homeland. And that's important. They're looking for a place that looks like Central Asia. They're, they're horse people. They're tough horse people. And they're kind of Muslim. They're not real Muslim yet because they're nomadic horse people. They're not into the whole ceremonies and the... They... they yeah. They're Muslim because you had to be Muslim to, to get paid by the caliph. All right. But it's really someone else's idea. But they are Muslim. They're just not 
Muslim Muslim. They're not very Muslim yet. But they're looking for a homeland. And they're told, basically, that the Middle East, you can see, it's desert. There's these river valleys. It, it, it doesn't look like home at all. What they're used to is the high plateau grasslands of Central Asia. And so what they're looking for is a high plateau grassland. Turns out, that's Asia Minor. You cross over the Tarsus Mountains, and basically you get Wyoming. You get the high, flat grasslands that go all the way to the mountains of the sea, that prop up, pop up out of the sea. They see this and they go, home. Hey, everybody, this is home. We can get out of the desert. We can live here. Now, so they start crossing over the into, into Armenia. They go into the mountains of the Caucasus. They're crossing over. So this is a problem of the borders. And the Byzantine Empire emperor says, okay, this isn't terrible. This is okay. We could, we could deal with this. Now, for the last hundred years or so, from about 950 to 1050 or so, the Byzantine Empire, Empire has been in trouble. It's had one bad emperor after another. It has lots of instability, has had a couple civil wars. It's kind of a wreck. The current emperor is not a terrible emperor, but he's not a great one either. Had had there been a Justinian, had there been a Heraclius, had there been a Basil the Bulgar Slayer, the guy who crushed the Slavs, um, he they probably could have just put their hands on their hips, laughed, and these Turks would have run away. There's not that many of them. Asia Minor is full of cities. It's full of 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 defenses. It's got their they have their own horse. Cavalry, armored Horf cavalry, called cataphracti, these heavily armored men. Uh, they're allied to the Armenians, who are more cavalry. We could probably we could crush them. We should be able to crush a bunch of horse nomads from Central Asia. Should be able to handle this. We've handled worse. But here's the thing. We have, remember, we're Romans. We have that concept called Natio, N-A-T-I-O. So he, this is what we could do. If we beat up the Turks, the Turks are just looking for a homeland. We can settle them. We can put them into Asia Minor. We can let them be Turks. But we can make them Christians. What do they care? They're not really Muslims. So we'll make them not really Christians. We can beat them up. Make them take over our God because our God's obviously awesome because we beat them up. And then use them to reinvade the Middle East. Capture Damascus. Capture Baghdad. At least capture Antioch, the the the, the city, the the Byzantine city of Byzantine cities. Uh in the east, the old capital of, of Roman Syria. Maybe even capture Egypt again, though that's probably too far out. That has a whole other caliphate. But we can use them. Nashio allows us to tap into that whole group of people. And so all we have to do is win a battle. Beat them up. Say, we're awesome. Come work for us. Here's Jesus. And we win. And maybe we reconquer the Middle East. We liberate 
the 85% of people that are still Christians. Boom. We have peasants again. We've got uh, churches running again. We have the infrastructure. It's not gone yet. It won't be gone until after the Crusades. We can do this. It's not that bad. All we have to do is win one battle. Guess what? We lose. It's a disaster. It's a complete and utter disaster. Why? Because two generals, two side generals of the emperor betray the emperor in the middle of the battle. If you've ever seen um, Braveheart, there's, the, there's one of the climactic battles. I want to say it's the climactic battle, but it's a big battle. And they're fighting and William Wallace looks over at the, the infantry is all fighting. And he looks over at the Scottish cavalry made up of all the noblemen. And he's like, now, come, we'll win the battle. And the cavalry turns around and walks off. Dooming, dooming them to disaster because they made a deal with the English king. That's what happened. These two generals say, hey, you know what? If the emperor gets killed at Manzikert and I go back to Constantinople, I can be emperor. And the other guy says, F you. I, if I get there first, I could be emperor. And so basically they took their pieces off the, off the board, left the emperor in the middle of the battle, which should have been a victory. He had more men. Suddenly, at a disadvantage, because let's face it, if you expect to have 100% and you end up with 66%, you got a problem. He f does a fighting withdrawal in the mid-late day. The units get separated. The horsemen come in, break everything up. Everyone goes down fighting. The emperor is killed. Now, here's the thing. That army is mostly infantry. So it walks back to Constantinople. Not the one that got killed with the emperor. They're dead. But the other two betrayers, they're walking back. The Turks have won. They're on horses. So guess what they do? They catch up to those two betrayers. And you can imagine what nomadic barbarians, nomadic horsemen, who are professional warriors, think about leaders who betray their king, who betray their chief. These are not guys they're going to make deals with. And so what do they do? Obliterate those two pieces. And so it's a 100% loss. It's a total disaster. And it's the loss of Asia Minor to the Turks. The Turks move in. Hey, it's home. Come on in. So Turks start leaving the Middle East and moving into what becomes Turkey. The Greeks who lived in Asia Minor leave. Why? Because the neighborhood sucks now. It's like a giant biker gang moved in and beat up the cops. Well, you better get out while the getting is good. So they leave, and as they leave, the Turks move in. And so what happens is Asia Minor goes from being Greek, Christian, and urban. Greek, Christian, and urban to being Turkish, Muslim, because there's no reason to convert now, we won. Muslim and rural, because they're horse people. They don't need all those cities. 
And so it goes from being Greek, which it has been for 2,000 years, since Alexander, since Homer in a lot of ways, Greek, Christian. Remember, many of these cities are the cities St. Paul walked through. Christian and urban, and it becomes Turkish, Muslim, and rural. And this is the major change. Asia Minor changes into Turkey, and this is the major change for the first time in 2,000 years. And it's only beginning to change now in the 20th, 21st century with the Republic of Turkey, whereas Asia Minor is starting to build cities again. Ankara is one. Um, there's going to be ones on the Black Sea. Izmir. You start to see an urbanization, a modern urbanization happening in Turkey, but only in the 20th, 21st century, late 20th, 21st century is where it's beginning to become urbanized again. It remains rural for the next 2,000 years. Or at least 1,000 years, I should say. Excuse me, 1,000 years. It's the first time Asia Minor changes in 2,000 years, and it will remain this way for 1,000 years. Now, it remains Turkish and Muslim, but it's becoming urbanized. So what you have is a complete change in the Byzantine world. It, ha it will hold on to a little bit of Asia Minor. It has that heartland in Southeast Europe, Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria. But for the most part, Europe has been kicked out of Asia. And that's huge because the Middle East was European. Egypt the Tigris and Euphrates, Syria, Israel, Turkey, were European places from Alexander to this moment. This is the end. There's really no chance. There'll be a little bit of a recovery uh, during the Crusades. But what, what really happens is a slow just movement of peoples. The Turks will just kind of absorb, kick out, and take over and create a Turkey where Asia Minor had once been. So this is where we're going to end with the Byzantines. It's not a good place. Um, we'll pick up, we'll mention the Byzantines a little bit in the Crusades. It doesn't go well, unsurprising. Um, and then we pick up the Byzantines in History 102 with kind of their end in 1453. So um, the story of the Byzantines is one of great optimism followed by tremendous sadness and disappointment. Um, it's It's been the history of the Byzantine world is called um, one of the great sad tales of history. That's just, it's, it has so much promise. The Byzantines are always so on the edge of being awesome. And then just not. Bad things happen. A giant plague. They betray their own general when they could have won it all. Um, civil wars. Bad leaders. A great king 
who didn't train his daughters how to be an emperor in his image. Uh, betrayers who will sell out Constantinople and its thousand years of wealth to pirates and looters. It's just one, it's just sad. It's just a sad tale. At least I think so. And it's worth, worth finding because there is so much that's awesome. They had Plato and Aeschylus and Sophocles. They are people in the Middle Ages who thought of themselves as Romans. And the world, they're, they're just like an appendix. The world had passed them by. The world had moved on. The world didn't need Romans anymore. The world was turning into a world of countries, of states, and leaving empires behind. Big multinational empires. It's going to be the national state of France, of Germany, and England. With their colonies, with their empires. But it's going to be the state that's going to end up being the future. And today we don't have giant empires. We have countries. Like the UN is not made up out of empires. It's made out of countries. So that's the way the world runs. So it's a giant sad tale. And this is where we will end. Thank you.